I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Were any liberal organization not to weigh in on a Supreme Court decision overturning the Roe v. Wade decision that invented a nationwide right to abortion, one might expect organized labor, ostensibly dedicated to improving workers' wages and working conditions, to be that abstaining faction. If one expected that, one would have been wrong. Big labor, in keeping with its longstanding practice of social justice unionism that sees labor unions advocating not only for abortion access, but for a broad left-wing social agenda, condemned the Dobbs ruling, placing it in an incongruous alliance with woke corporations, now vowing that they will offer access to abortions as employment benefits. Joining me to discuss organized labor's relationship with woke capitalism and social justice unionism is James Shirk, the director of the Center for American Freedom at the America First Policy Institute. Uh, James, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background and work with America First Policy Institute? Uh, Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, As you said, uh, I direct the Center for American Freedom at uh, AFPI. Uh, Before that, I served in the uh, White House on the Domestic Policy Council for uh, all four years uh, of the Trump presidency, uh, where I uh, basically oversaw the uh, different uh, labor regulatory agencies, uh, the Department of Labor, the National Labor Relations Board, the Federal Labor Relations Authority. Uh, And I I had this background uh, because I I was also a uh, labor uh, policy economist for the Heritage Foundation before that. I got a master's degree in economics with a uh, concentration in uh, labor economics and uh, have been focused on uh, labor issues and labor policies uh, pretty much my entire professional career. So I guess you're the person I should ask about this. Why does organized labor as an institution, why does the AFL-CIO, why does the SCIU, why does the NEA, why do they care about abortion? I think, I mean, there's, there's an obvious answer to that question. And the answer is, uh, while the rank and file members of the unions have uh, different political views. Some are very liberal. Some are very conservative. Uh, some love President Trump. You know, some couldn't stand him. They had you know, diversity of opinion within the unions. Uh, but the union leadership itself is uh, certainly at the higher levels of the organizations, uh, almost monolithically left wing, and not just a little bit left to center, but activist uh, left wing. Uh, you know, hard left progressives, and on everything, not just on the sort of union issues, but on you know, social issues, on environmental yeah, issues. Because what you, you'd expect. Like you'd expect, you know, the, the, the union officials to be great society, liberal bordering on socialist on questions like the minimum wage and, you know, hours, wage hour regulations and, and, uh, union organizing, but they're also pretty left progressive on all these other issues. Yeah, and that gets to the more sort of interesting question of why are the unions monolithically run by hard left-wing activists, at least at the senior levels of the union? That's not true of every union shop steward, of course, but while you've got this diversity of views of the membership, why is it that only the left-wing guys come to the top? And there's actually been interesting research done on that. Uh, Some papers were published in the American Economic Review uh, that basically found that the unions that tend to be the most institutionally successful uh, that is, you know, that tend to grow the most and, uh, you know, organize the most workplaces and such, uh, are those unions that are least responsive to the concerns of their members. Uh, so you can you know, think of a union uh, that, um, uh, a, a union that has a direct election of their president, you have very strong democratic accountability. Those are the unions that tended not to grow as quickly 
as the unions that you know, would do things like, well, you, the union member, elect a member of a local council. And the local council elects your delegates to a state uh, convention. The state conventions elect the, the national leadership. Well, you're filtering in the union leadership through multiple layers of activists, and you don't have a direct democracy. And that sort of lack of accountability uh, tends to produce people uh, who are very much on the left. Uh, and of course, it also it also you know sometimes sometimes it produces you know an activist political cadre. Uh, of course, one of the most famous cases of that sort of uh, union governance produced a very centrist cadre that was also hideously corrupt, and that was the Teamsters Union before the nineties. Yes, no, that's uh, um, no, that's that's true. Uh, you did have uh, it occasionally happens, uh, but in general, uh, these you know, you're basically filtering. You know, the most activist of the activist of the activists are the ones who you know filter the way. Through. Yeah, well, I, I mean, whatever whatever cadre, whether it's an ideological cadre or, as in the case of the old Teamsters, was a corrupt cadre, that cadre is making the making the choices on who's going to filter up the filter up the chain of chain of command. Exactly. And the the reasons for this uh, are that basically the unions that are most insulated from their members' actual desires can do things that are more in the interests of the union that the members don't actually support. You know, things like charging higher dues to pay for more union organizing. You know, a lot of union members would rather pay lower dues. You know, pay what you need to do to you know, operate the union, but you know, we don't want to pay a thousand bucks a year. That's too much. It's, let's give it down to 500 bucks a year, right? Those sort of sensitive, responsive uh, to the member concerns. Uh, um, those are the kind of things that don't produce the institutional growth of the union. And so if you have unions that are insulated and don't have to do what the, uh, the rank and file you know, care about, they can prioritize the institutional growth of the union. And those are the ones that tend to grow faster and tend to grow more, uh, which, which makes sense. But it doesn't just fall into effect when it comes to, to things like, all right, are we going to spend more money on organizing and charge higher dues to do that? It also comes, it turns out, all right, well, the folks who tend to be most politically radical are the folks who tend to filter the way up through the cadres. And because you've got this uh, sort of lack of direct accountability, not in every union, uh, but the unions that mm-hmm. tended to grow the most and the fastest were the unions where the leadership was the uh, the most unaccountable uh, to the people, right? Like one of the, the largest and fastest growing unions uh, today is the Service Employees International Union. And, uh, you know, when uh, uh, Joseph Stern uh, stepped down and was replaced by Mary Kay Henry. No Andy, one Andy, yeah, Andy, Andy Stern, yeah. That's right, Andy Stern. And the, and, the other th- and the other thing SCIU has been accused of doing is intervening in its, when it's local, when it's local leaders, uh, you know, gain, gain more authority and have large, uh, large local unions, the mega locals, they're sometimes yeah. called. Uh, if they get too big, they'll just break them up to try to keep the the central authority in, in control. Exactly. No, right? So the, the folks who tend to uh, filter the way up through you know, the local, state, national conventions and such tend to be hardcore activists. And the very structure of it uh, sees to it that their decisions, there's no real accountability to the rank of file. Who they're accountable to are, are activists. And so, yes, you get the union sort of making institutional decisions like charging more in union dues to pay for more organizing. But the same people who go through that process tend to be very radical on a lot of other issues, right? Like what in the world is organized labor doing weighing in on the abortion issue, right? This is a very divisive issue, obviously. You know, one half of the country, uh, roughly speaking, believes that it's the taking of the life of uh, an innocent child and is uh, a horrific form of, uh, of murder. 
And the other half of the country thinks yeah, that's crazy and that it's a fundamental right and freedom uh, and essential for people to be able to control their own lives. These are very deeply held beliefs, and they have nothing to do with how you think a seniority system should be structured in your plant or whether or not you want a union. If you're a union, why are you going out spending your members' dues money, uh, endorsing politicians who uh, you weigh in on one side or the other, uh, telling politicians that they should weigh in? All you're doing is dividing your membership and distracting from the task at hand. The reason the unions do it, despite the internal controversy, is because the, the senior leadership uh, feels very passionately on this issue. There's almost no representation on the pro-life side uh, in the unions, and they don't really have that democratic accountability to the rank and file, so they're going to do what they want. Um, you're right, and it's, that's the incentive structure they have. They don't have to cater to the views of the rank and file. And you know, unions build themselves as representatives of workers, and, and again, there are some local unions you know, where that's a fair description, but... The national leadership of all these unions is, you know, they're not accountable to the, the rank and file the same way that, say, uh, the president or members of the Senate or governors are accountable to the voters. Uh, the, all the biggest unions are, are selected uh, through very indirect forms of representation. So there is a tendency among certain factions on the right that, you know, there, there's been this growth of woke capitalism uh of employers taking the liberal side in various social issues. Um, and that, and there's been this sort of developing nascent uh, effort to maybe wonder if organized labor could be a potential balancing force against it. Uh, I think the evidence based on what we've seen with how the social justice unionism works strongly cautions against that. What do you think? No, I, I would agree. I mean, one of the things I find most striking is, uh, for example, take the, the unions in the newspapers, that when you've had, say, New York Times or Washington Post reporters, uh, I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's stunning to me that you would see the newsroom reporters demanding that, you know, opinion you know, page editors be fired because they're not ideologically pure enough, which is exactly what happened to the New that York is, Times. That is, that is what happened to the New York Times, yeah. Right, like, it's, it's stunning to me. But then that the union that represents these uh, workers is paid to defend them. Like their core job description is to protect these workers' jobs. Do not defend the workers who are being fired for uh, crossing ideological boundaries and not being uh, sufficiently woke enough and are basically standing on the sidelines and uh, in some cases actually tweeting in support of uh, firing the, uh, uh, the dissenters from the, the regnant ideology. I mean, that tells you uh, that these unions, many of them, again, not true of the rank and file, you know, uh, you know, in the rank and file, you've got a diversity of views, and uh, but among the leadership and the folks who are calling the shots, they're not really paying attention to what the rank and file care about on these issues. And, and also, and also the and also the activist the activist cadre of workers to whom the officers exactly. answer. Yes. No. Exactly. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's a huge problem, right? That uh, I mean, the unions have weighed in on all of these political issues. Broadly speaking, saying organized labor lines up with the left and everything. And in many cases, the interests of many other left-wing activist groups are quite harmful to the rank and file, right? Like every single construction union endorsed uh, President uh, Biden during his campaign. What does he do on his first day in office? But canceled the Keystone Pipeline, which was in the process of creating tens, like literally one of his first acts of office was to vaporize tens of thousands of good you know, paying union jobs. And even if you're not in a construction union, I mean, you know, 
all of us who are Americans who have a car are, are hurt by rising gas prices. And even if you don't, because the, the trucks that carry all the goods to the store, you know, it, it leaves everyone. Yeah, you're, you're, right? if, if, you, if you buy anything, you're feeling the inflation, you're feeling the energy, energy price crunch, you're feeling... The Keystone Pipeline mm-hmm. right about now would be very handy to have to bring in uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot more you know, oil into our country. And yet the, the union uh, movement uh, lined up behind uh, the president uh, who canceled this and all of them, you're lockstep, right? Like they weren't trying to extract an eight commitment that says, no, 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 I won't cancel Keystone. They, they you know, just got lined up solidly behind him without any sort of promises to protect uh, you know, their members' jobs and left the rank and file high and dry. Uh, I mean, look, union members, non-union members were all hurting from these high gas prices. And yet, yeah, how many of these unions endorsed uh, Deb uh, Holland? Or I, I might be mispronouncing her name, but the yeah, interior. Yeah, I, I, th- I think I think that sec- the Secretary of Interior. Yeah, who's in the process of shutting down uh, oil and gas uh, you know, permits on federal lands. Again, one of the early executive actions taken by Biden was to shut down uh, new oil and gas uh, drilling permits on federal lands, uh, which, again, that's directly, in many of these cases, union jobs uh, that are gone or not being created. And then all of us, uh, union, non-union, retiree, everyone, feels the pain through higher gas prices. What are the unions doing endorsing this agenda? Why aren't they sticking in their lane of, you know, at least what they say their lane is, of you know, higher wages and better working conditions? And it's because the leadership is just insulated from the concerns of the rank and file. You know, if you're a union member and you're upset that your union has you know, endorsed this you know, uh, radical agenda on shutting down American energy production, okay, tough cookies, right? Like they, they don't answer to you. Um, so it's, it's I, 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 look, you take a look at surveys. And surveys show substantial dissatisfaction among union members with their union leadership. You know, the actual numbers will vary depending on the poll you look at. It could be anywhere between one third and two thirds of union members uh, think that their union leadership is doing a lousy job uh, and is not looking up to the interests of the rank and file and is looking out for uh, basically for themselves. And, you know, look, if you've got 30 percent, much less, you know, two thirds of uh, an organization's membership saying the leadership's not looking out for us. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. Well, absolutely. Was it always this way? I mean, have have the unions always been this tied in with the sort of broader progressive agenda, or is this something that emerged later uh, in 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 recent decades? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's the extent of their identification now is a more recent phenomenon, uh, right? Like when uh, when Roe v. Wade came out in the seventies. The unions, you know, it was controversial within the unions, uh, just as it was controversial within the political parties. And right at the time, the Republican Party was not a clearly pro-life party, and the yeah, Democrat Party was not clearly in support of abortion. Right. You had, you had, a, you had a lot of Catholic Catholic Democrats, many of whom were, were trade unionists, and right. you had a lot of the Rockefeller Republicans who were staunchly uh, pro-choice. Yeah. Nelson Rockefeller, the Republican governor of New York. Uh, signing uh, one of the most expansive abortion laws in the country before uh, Roe v. Wade came down, um, right? So the union movement really wasn't weighing in on things like this. In fact, many unions for a considerable length of time went to great lengths to not uh, take positions on abortion. And you know, while they would often give to Democratic candidates because they aligned with them otherwise, they'd be careful not to take institutional positions on these sort of social issues. Um, in the past 10, 15 years, that's really sort of fallen out of favor. And they become much more radical on the you know the full range of uh, social issues, right? Like again, if you're a, a union member, uh, you know, lots of union members you know have positions on either side of the issue of should a biological male 
who identifies as a female be allowed to play on a male or female sports team. Uh, you probably haven't seen union member specific polling, but you know, probably uh, as most Americans believe that yeah. uh, women's sports should be reserved for biological uh, females. Right. There, there's no, would... there's no reason to believe that it's wildly out of line. And, you know, maybe it's a little yeah. more liberal maybe by a little, by a little bit, but it's but, probably not wildly out of line with the nation at large. What are all these unions doing? You sort of identifying this as a cause that they, they identify with, right? Like, well, that has nothing to do with getting higher wages for a, a worker at a Kroger. Uh, that has nothing to do uh, with you know, how you're going to handle overtime shift assignments, you know, for a nurse, or you know any of these things. Uh, but because the unions have just taken, a, yeah, as you said, this mantle of social justice unionism, which in practice, I mean, look, social justice sounds great. We're all support you know justice, and uh, you know certainly there's context where justice can be more than you know, pertaining to just one person. But what it practically means is you take the hard left position on every single issue, and you just you know, march in lockstep with the rest of the left. And that leads to the unions weighing in on issues like abortion, where they have no role whatsoever. Uh, and it's you know controversial with their membership. And you, you have you know, a lot of uh, these agency fee payers and the people who will opt out of paying union dues are opting up precisely because they don't want to be, uh, we view what they be as a complicit in abortion, what you know, many Americans believe the, the murder of an innocent child, and they're not willing to pay dues to an organization that endorses it and activates you know, right? Like, it. And you can and you can look at it from the you can look at it from the other side too, where you go, how many more workers would potentially want to organize if it didn't bind them to a uh, to a political advocacy network yep. that is so profoundly against their values. You know, if you look at the UAW's failed organizing campaigns in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I think that's quite uh, illustrative. All right, this is a fascinating case. Where because uh, you know, Volkswagen is based in Germany and under German law, uh, unions you know uh, have seats. On the they board get they get a seat on the board. There are works councils. They have well, a lot of institutional and then authority. The uh, the home uh, province or the home state, uh, I think it's state in Germany, um, uh, of uh, Volkswagen. The the government also the state government also appoints the you know, members of the board and at the time was controlled by the uh, the Social Democratic Party. So you effectively had labor activists control the majority of the board of directors. Uh, in Volkswagen, and they had decided that they would actually like to be unionized. Uh, and so the orders came down that the Volkswagen was not to uh, resist the union organizing drive, at least the initial drive. Uh, and the UAW came in and was uh, trying to organize these uh, workers in this plant in Chattanooga. And there was pushback from the, the rank and file members. Uh, them, you know, well, they weren't members yet. Rank and file workers saying, yeah, actually, the, you know. The, the shop floor guys. Yeah, exactly. We saw what happened to Detroit. These jobs are actually pretty awesome. Some of the highest paying jobs in the area we don't want to wind up the way uh, General Motors did. And you had a, a very grassroots campaign pushing back against the organizers. And part of the arguments that were being made were like, you know, this is the United Obama workers. These guys got behind Obama and all of his activism on, you know, in many different social issues. We don't identify with, again, you know, Tennessee and Chattanooga, you a very conservative state. Um, and the, the rank and file workers were saying, we don't want to be part of your union. Uh, because you're just so heavily in bed with you know, the left and, and this president who stands for social issues that are so contrary to our values. Now, and, then, can, and, then, and then, of course, a couple of years later, all the corruption stuff comes out and you wonder, did they <laughs> probably probably didn't discourage, uh, probably didn't convince anyone that they made the wrong decision? Yeah, you know, oh, it turns out senior leadership was taking bribes to uh, negotiate uh, uh, less generous uh, you know, pay and benefit packages and was you know, embezzling our dues, right? Like, I mean... 
<laughs> yeah, they. it certainly seems in, in hindsight, given the massive corruption, that those workers dodged a bullet. But the union didn't lose by that much. They only lost the initial vote by about uh, six points, 53-47. Yeah, and then, right? and then there was a second there was a second go that was like four points or something. It yeah, was, something it, like that. Pretty yeah. close both times. Yeah, like if the union had not identified themselves so closely with political and cultural causes that are anathema to a significant share of workers, they'd have an easier time building a solidarity. You know, it's, I mean, they, they claim to be trying to build solidarity on common interests, uh, but then they're very activist on things in which you know, a lot of workers, you know, have very legitimate and very different and very strongly and passionately held differences of opinion. And if you had unions that were more accountable to the rank and file, uh, then yeah, maybe you wouldn't have that happen. Uh, I mean, I, I think policies, you know, obviously right to work uh, gives the, the workers the, opt, you know, the, the right to opt out of paying dues and imposes a measure of discipline there. Uh, policies like paycheck protection, where the union would have to ask the uh, the workers for their permission to spend their dues on politics, so they couldn't just uh, you know sort of uh, decide it's yeah, easier to ask for uh, forgiveness than uh, permission and just you know spend it on left wing politicians unless you uh, jump through you know many many pages of administrative hoops to opt out. Um, you know policies like that requiring the unions themselves to stand for re-election. I mean, this is the incredible mm-hmm. statistic that. You know, 94% of unions, private sector unions in the U.S. today, none of the members in the union even voted on whether to have that union, uh, right? That most yeah, of these, they, they get formed and then they stay in place indefinitely unless the workers jump through an enormous number of hoops to ask for decertification election. And yeah. it's, you know, if the workers are really livid, they can do it, but it's hard. Uh, just administratively, all the, the hoops you have to go through. So in general, right. these unions just stick around forever. And 94% of workers are in a union they never voted for. Uh, or ninety-four percent of private sector unionized. Yeah, workers. private sector. I think was if, that. If sad. you made the union stand for re-election, then the the leadership would institutionally have to be going back to the workers and saying, "Here's what we're doing to take care of your concerns. Uh, here is you know all the value we've delivered. Look at what this new, great new contract got." You know, they would have a measure of democratic accountability that would force them to perform, and would also discipline them so that if they wanted to go off and campaign for Biden and you know be abortion rights activists and you know, campaign on, you know, shutting down Keystone and, you know, all that fun stuff, then pretty quickly the members have an easy way to say, eh, not so much, guys. We do, yeah, we don't want to be a part of that anymore. And, you know, like, you know, they wouldn't have to lose more than a few of those re-election votes to decide that, you know, they should, you know, stick their knitting, so to speak, and focus on what the members care about. But there's nothing like that in the current law, you know, forcing the uh, senior union leadership of these uh, major unions to be accountable to the rank and file. Uh, it's, it's a huge uh, problem. I, I I agree. I agree with you there. Uh, before we let you go, James, is there any work by you or your America First Policy Institute colleagues that you'd like to promote to our listeners? Yeah, we did a report uh, back in September. Uh, if you Google uh, Center for American Freedom and American First Policy Institute, uh, you'll uh, you come to the uh, uh, come to our webpage, and it's under our policy papers. There are a lot of big labor handouts in the uh, attempted Build Back Better, uh, Big Government Socialism bill. Uh, looks like that bill is on life support and. Maybe the plug is going to get pulled, you know, to be determined. But there are a lot of provisions in that bill that, again, were aimed at undermining sort of accountability of the unions to the rank and file, making it easier for unions to organize without a secret ballot election, yeah, for example, different measures to uh, uh, pursue that. And it sort of highlights these takeaways that institutionally, the union leadership, I mean, like, they'd like to be organized with no election, just you have to join the union would be their preferred Everyone has to join, right? But that's not the law. The law is that it's, you know, workers free. Wait, so wait, until, wait until we all meet sectoral bargaining. Okay. That is such a mess. Um, right? But that's, there are a lot of provisions in the uh, Build Back Better Big Government Socialism bill 
that are just, you know, hand out to the union bosses at the expense of the rank and file. And we go through them and you know, discuss them in the report. All right. Well, thank you once again to James Shirk of America First Policy Institute for joining us. That's our show for this week. Please subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, please please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.